0: Every damn, day, every, damn day, every damn day, every damn day, Hello, everyone. It's Jerry at the Fledge, and welcome to Every Damn Day, season two. During and after, what it's going to look like. Uh, with what you're doing so how are you doing today
1: i'm doing well and thank you so much for inviting me jerry and i didn't re- remember that the background would color coordinate with my sweater so hey that's really yeah, great it looks great um so i t- talked to jerry a little bit before we started and we just talked about that i'd tell you about some of the history that you may not know about me um because i did i was born at sparrow hospital just kind of across the street from here And I uh, grew up for the first 10 years of my life on North Pennsylvania Avenue between Oakland and Saginaw. It's a vacant lot Mm -hmm. now. It deserved to be a vacant lot. Um, And so I went to Oak Park School and um, learned to swim at Eastern when I was around nine or 10 years old. Um, And then we moved to the Grosbeck area and I went to Post Oak School um, and Otto Pattengill in Eastern. So I'm a 1974 Mm -hmm. graduate of Eastern High School. It was a really great experience. I know so many people, even then, who had children in the Lansing School District would talk about, you know, maybe wanting their children to go to private schools or East Lansing, or that was the, the star school then. Um, and I've always been very grateful to have had the experience of, of growing up in Lansing and going to Easter, which, frankly, I... They still think it's the best of the high schools.
0: Quakers.
1: <laughs> there was, uh, during that time, there was another school called Harry Hill. It was only around for a very few years. And there was also something fabulous called the Academic Interest Center, where um, you could, the high school students could be bused for specialty classes to um, down what's West Junior, which is administration building downtown now. And you could study things like advanced biology or Certain kinds of literature, Russian, just classes that there wouldn't be enough people in any one school. So I've always been proud that Lansing now, with a baccalaureate program and some of the immersion programs, has those kinds of things. And by the way, and I wasn't planning to do this, but oh, yes, yes, I'm the Lansing School Bond. Um, And, but at any rate, so because I grew up here and I grew up with an immigrant mother. My mother uh, was born and raised during Nazi Germany, came over with my father who um, was in the army and was assigned to Germany because the Korean War ended when he was in boot camp. So he would have gone to Korea, um, but he went to Germany and met my mother. So having that experience of somebody who was adapting to culture here was was another frame that was very interesting for me. Um, I had... um, I had an early love for reading and for being just aware of some of the dynamics. My older brother um, had some uh, um, emotional issues. Um, he ended up in Kalamazoo State Hospital for many years. So I always had a deep sensitivity to, um, you know, issues of people having perceived or actual differences and um, trying to look out for them. Um, And I think that really is one of the reasons I took the career path I did. Um, And I also, my parents were involved when I was fairly young in a a political campaign. Um, They worked on uh, Representative and later Senator, Senator Earl Nelson's campaign, who was one of the very, if not the first, one of the first black legislators in michigan um so that i went door to door when i was a young teen so that again started opening my eyes to um what we needed to do to be involved in the system so as i was um growing up in the 60s i remember in eighth grade um i decided i was going to be a lawyer (laughs) and I had no idea what that meant. Uh, We were working class. We didn't have lawyers in the family. I didn't know any lawyers. I was, you know, watch TV shows like Perry Mason, but I knew I wanted to do something where uh, as a female, I had a chance to um, have input in a way that it was not typical at that time. So um, of course that wasn't something that was lauded by everybody. um, But I, it, I had no idea what it meant, but it was just something I put in my mind as a, as a goal. Um, and luckily for me, it did work out. But um, I will just say that it really had no basis in, in much of anything at the time.
0: Where did you go to school? <laughs>
1: uh, so I went to MSU as an undergrad, and I was in James Madison College mm-hmm. where I studied, um, this is, it's very pompous, um, <laughs> Justice, Morality, and Constitutional Democracy, so we studied the studied the political underpinnings of the, our own government, what yeah. what documents and um, philosophers that the founders studied, and I also was a philosophy dual major. So you can see where I come by my yeah. thought process. So
0: good pre law. Yes, uh,
1: yes. And I also um, had um, a job in a bookstore during college. I started in a movie theater um, as at sixteen. And but the job I wanted was bookstore. And that's where I worked for four and a half years. So at the time, I, you know, I'd save money to go to law school and it was not quite as expensive as it is now. And I got accepted to a few law schools. And then I decided, no, I'm not going to go to law school. I'm going to continue working in the bookstore and I want to own a bookstore someday, which frankly was always my fantasy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I um, decided that No, I, there were things I wanted to do, and at that point, it was mostly civil rights. I wanted to work on the issue, women's issues primarily, because this was the 70s, um, and uh, there were so many issues. Um, and so I did end up going to law school I just because I decided to work within the system. And I had no intention of being a prosecutor. I grew up with Perry Mason, um, and Hamilton Berger never won a case. Someone always came in, and Perry Mason's clients were always innocent. I didn't want to be a defense attorney either. Um, But then I was doing volunteer work with the Council Against Domestic Assault, which is the um, predecessor of Eve. Um, And I was clerking for Judge uh, Jim Giddings, um, and who was a real progressive, you know, as a a person and as a judge. And um, I watched trials and started seeing that when people came in, especially on domestic violence cases, they didn't have anyone there for them except for the prosecutor. Um, It was early victim rights days. So there weren't really lots of uh, community advocates like there are now. And so there was an opening at the prosecutor's office. And in 1983, I joined the prosecutor's office as an assistant. And I did that for about uh, 11 and a half years. And during that time, I mostly worked in the areas of sexual assault, domestic violence, and child abuse. I really found that to be my niche. Um, But I also, as I did district court, jury trials, circuit court trials. I saw the racial disproportionality, and I also saw the over-impact of poverty. Um, You know, if someone didn't show up for court because they couldn't pay a ticket, then their license was suspended, and they got a bench warrant, and everything just, you know, escalated. So... I'm almost done with this part. No, it's okay. (laughs) Keep going.
0: This is easy for me.
1: (laughs) So, uh, you know, I did that, and I got frustrated, uh, uh, you know, with the system, um, and I decided it'd be better to work. I was going to try other places where I could impact the system differently. So in 1995, I went to the Prosecuting Attorneys Association, and I created their first child abuse training program. And I was the juvenile unit chief at that time at Ingham County Prosecutor's Office. And so my... Concern was the syst- how the system worked. I mean, we were putting kids in foster care who didn't need to be in foster care, but maybe not putting kids in foster care who did need to be. Um, juveniles um, who committed uh, criminal offenses weren't necessarily getting the assistance they needed. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to do something different. And so I spent about four years at the Prosecuting Attorneys Association and developed training for CPS workers, police and prosecutors. Then I went to the legislature and drafted bills for a few years. Uh, And uh, that was an interesting process. So I learned a lot about that. And I also ended up with the Office of Children's Ombudsman. And uh, then I was State Court Administrative Office where I was the Deputy Director of Child Welfare Services. So I had definitely have always had a niche in child welfare. Um, And then I followed my uh, then boss, I followed to the Department of Human Services Um, where we came, we were just coming under a federal consent decree that the state is still under to basically improve how we deliver child welfare services in Michigan. And I was hired to lead the Child Welfare Training Institute, which I did for about three years. And then (laughs) I'm getting close now. And then I, uh, I, I'm just old, you know. Uh, Then I went to uh, Public Policy Associates, um, just down on the road where Clara's used to be. And I worked on Um, race equity issues involving both juvenile delinquents and child welfare, uh, the child welfare system. You know, saying that we know that there are different problems, that the uh, problems get exponentially bigger as you go through the system. Uh, And what can we do? First, you have to have the data so you know what the problem is. Uh, So I did that, but uh, just for a while. And then um, when this position became available, I was not planning to run. That never was my dream. Um, but I was encouraged to, so I ran in a four-way Democratic primary in, 19, in 2016 and got 42% of the vote, so I thought that was pretty good, and about 59% of the vote in the general election. And when I came on board, I, because of my experiences both as an assistant prosecutor and what I had learned since I'd been gone about how the federal system worked, I mean, there's so many things you learn when you expand your scope of what you're looking at, I came back knowing that racial disproportionality, mass incarceration and increasing equity and fairness in the system were things I wanted to do. And I talked to a lot of people, including people I had worked with at the prosecutor's office and judges and police chiefs and to try to get some ideas of things I could do right away. So then I'm going to let you, you know, ask me the next question, because that's now or to the kind of present. <laughs> well,
0: all the way back to Sparrow. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I, uh, as I, as you were talking and I, you were saying being born in Sparrow and going to Lansing Eastern, I've just been thinking a lot about mm-hmm. when I first moved back to Lansing, because I was in Grand Ledge for a mm-hmm. while. Um, they immediately closed Lansing Eastern and moved it over to the, the new oh, Patent Gill mm-hmm. building. And then... A couple of weeks ago they closed mclaren which is where i was born when it was uh, in the medical yeah. hospital or whatever it was mm-hmm. back then and i feel a little offended or something <laughs> um, doing it on purpose um but you know i when i think back in the 70s i was uh, a bit younger than you mm-hmm. uh, but not that much um i remember getting bused from the south side to the west side mm-hmm. and i didn't know the history of that at the time but there was there was a lawsuit that the school district, I think, was fighting I can tell against. You about but, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is just I, a little bit.
1: Sure. I was in high school at the time and I wore a black armband um, when they actually recalled the school board. So um, to, to increase fairness and, you know, there are things like urban renewal and busing that are controversial, mm-hmm. not just because of racism, but also do they really accomplish the goal? But at the time, <clears throat> excuse me. The goal was to try to make sure that schools were more integrated. So um, there was a, there was an individual named Max Schunk um, who did not like the idea. And when the school board decided that to bus children mm-hmm. to achieve that um, integration and more parity, um, he brought a recall election. And I don't recall all the school board members now, but one was Hortense Kennedy, who um, is... Uh, I think the mother of Clinton Candy, who's one of our judges, and certainly a matriarch of one of the leading families in the Lansing area. And it was something that was very troubling because you know, they put the Max Schunk folks prevailed. Yeah, so um that was not a high point. Um, and you know, I think it's it's we've learned in the last forty years that you always have to be attentive because when you're not attentive, you can't ever say, We've reached it. It's now good for all time that if you don't continually work on equity and fairness issues, you lose the gains.
0: Yeah. And it's going to it's going to shift. Right. It might shift from race. It might shift to gender. It might shift Mm -hmm. to class. Mm -hmm. And it's a it's a hard balance. You have a super hard job. And, you know, I think about what you're doing now. And we just uh, we experienced a young boy who's in our community who drowned the other day. And I was talking to a uh, a, a drowning prevention specialist yesterday, and he talked about blame and shame Mm. and how that comes up so common when there's a tragedy. So Mm -hmm. a drowning or a shooting or an overdose, Mm -hmm. everybody's looking, who can they blame? Who can they shame? Mm -hmm. Because they're trying to push it away from themselves. They don't ever want to think their child that that would happen to them. Mm. Um, and I started thinking about you mm-hmm. and how, when some tragedy in the community of shooting usually happens, how people just look to blame and to shame and to blame you sometimes. And mm-hmm. you've got such a tough job.
1: Well, I, you know, I think it's human nature. Um, I think we all do it to some extent, first of all, to preserve our own emotional yeah. peace. You know, uh, but I first really remember that issue in prosecution back when I was an assistant prosecutor, and I did a lot of sexual assault cases involving both children and and also adult women, and um, what I found is when you, and it's still true, sadly, when you have adolescent or adult women victims, uh, or boys for that matter, there weren't, there were always lots of boy victims, but males didn't come forward for a a number of reasons very often, um, that I know there was actually research back in the 80s that showed that jurors um, were not inclined to convict and that sometimes women were the worst. And it was because of that blame shame thing, I think, in large part. It was the idea that if you put yourself in that victim's place, then on some level you're acknowledging it could have happened to you. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, then that's scary. So it was more like, you know, if you blame the victim, then it's not, um, it's not, it's not never going to happen to you or the ones you love. But that same kind of um, dynamic, I think, goes through our, our many of our lives, you know, not just in regards to trauma things, Um, but it is a natural reaction. I think it's been heightened by the polarization we have in our society by Facebook and how quick it is to just like, or dislike, or really show your intense feelings with little filler. Um, And I guess what I feel is that um, I, just as I learned to hold victims' pain, um, you have to be able to be there for them, but not be so immersed in their pain that you can't advocate for them and help them. Um, You have to be clear headed. That I also have to hold the anger and the blame that some people hold and i have to be open enough to say they could be right i might mm-hmm. be wrong because well, you know we all are sometimes um but not it's very hard not to take it personally to be honest um but it i am a symbol and that was something i had to realize at some point because i don't think of myself as you know a important person any more than anyone else but Realizing that as the prosecutor is an elected official, I'm a symbol, and people don't necessarily know who I am, know what my values are, know what motivates me, and it's if they're angry. I'm a symbol. And yeah. so I'm, I'm okay with that. I but don't, you knew
0: that getting into it, I right? did
1: not quite to the extent <laughs> that, you know, that it's actually occurred. Because I don't think anyone would have predicted just the incredible polarization that's occurred in the four, last four or five years. But, um, but yeah, so it's, I don't love it, you know, but I'm also very fortunate. I have, you know, many supporters um, and the people who speak the loudest are often in the minority. But I feel very strongly, especially if it's a victim or a survivor's family, that they have a right to feel what they feel, that I should never tell them that they should forgive someone or they they should uh, want something different than what they want at that moment. We try to provide resources so that they could, you know, have counseling or, you know, have a chance to um, process it. Maybe many people years later feel very differently than they felt initially. Some don't you know and that needs to be um we need to honor that part of the process
0: my uh my mother was a victims advocate with the police department in the 80s and 90s and I thought that was great i mm-hmm. mean i thought it was horrible and great um, mm-hmm. the things she saw the trauma she brought mm-hmm. home uh mm-hmm. was pretty tough yeah i uh I want to talk about one issue or one, not an issue, but a policy you have that I was really thinking about a lot yesterday because I was reading about the House passing the the federal legalization of marijuana mm-hmm. and expunging or letting people out of prison if it was a nonviolent crime. Mm-hmm. And you you've not, you kind of turned off the automatic, we're going to charge you for a fel- uh, felonious possession if you connect or have a gun during a felony. Um, I can't, I can't okay. say the words right. That's uh, okay. I'm just trying to, I just uh, want to get
1: the question. Okay. And,
0: and the question is, you know, that's so important, I think, because if you project out 10 years and we, we change as a society and we, things are different. Mm-hmm. If you just automatically put that on, that would be a person that wouldn't be getting out when everyone else would be just because they had a gun in the trunk or something like that. And I think about how, you know, you said you were a long, or you were in the, the policy making for a while mm-hmm. and now you're back into the uh, prosecuting. Which one is most impactful? And how complicated is this? How, how do you, do you try to think? 30 oh,
1: years ahead? I do. And I won't say that I did that as an assistant necessarily, you know, because first of all, I was in my 20s and I was just trying to learn, you know, what are the court rules and the statutes and all the processes um, in listening to the victims and trying to do the right thing. I think, first of all, one of the... The prosecutor has a unique role in the system. The prosecutor's role is to obtain justice or to do mm-hmm. the, his or her best job to do so. We're not unlike a defense attorney whose job is to zealously represent the interest, the stated interest of his or her client, whether or not the lawyer thinks that's in their best interest. Mm-hmm. So we have a very unique role, and it means that we are trying to... Um, you know, make sure everyone witnesses, defendants, victims are treated fairly, and that we have an outcome that does represent justice as best as we can. There's very yeah. really real justice. I and mean, you don't bring back people, you don't undo the harm. But um, yeah, I'm a policy person by nature. That's why I studied philosophy. I read copiously more than probably most. That's, I don't watch TV, but I read, um, you know, just all the time. Um, but what I try to do is I work with as much data, research, and anecdote is powerful. But qual- you know, quantitative and qualitative evidence to say you know sometimes we knew things. I remember being schooled in what it meant to drive in wild black by one a young black prosecutor in the eighties who told me, and this was a person who drove a very very nice car, was a lawyer, um, came from a very good family. And yet he was pulled over, you know, fairly yeah. routinely. So it really opened my eyes when I was quite young. Um, and then, as I said, I started watching through the system what was happening. So when I came back to the prosecutor's office, I knew there were some policies I want to change right away. One was the habitual offender, which um, there has been one for a long time. There's, it allows you to supplement a sentence. So if someone has prior felony convictions within a certain time period, you can a- extend the end possible point of their sentence. And that there was a way to do that. And in my day, um, they were in orange folders and there was one attorney who really handled them and they were relatively rare. They were saved for, you know, armed robberies, you know, kind of big, mm-hmm. big cases. The law changed, the laws changed a lot in the 90s, in early 2000s, and basically made it easier to put people in prison for longer um, all over the United States, but Michigan was particularly onerous. And when I came back, there were so many ways to supplement sentences that I wanted to pull back on that right away. So in 2017, that was one of the first things I did. The other policies I wanted to wait and see what our data showed. And the problem was um, this gets kind of boring for a lot of people, but I do believe that you have to have the data before, you know, kind of what the problem looks like and we are just been finally getting that in the last few months and it's it substantiates you know pretty much what we could guess and now it's trying to put policies in place and then be able to measure or to look for what the underlying root causes are because we know that the criminal legal system doesn't exist in a vacuum it exists in our community with all you know during COVID, we've seen the health disparities of people who are poor or people who are persons of color. We've seen certainly the housing impact. Um, You know, everything that impacts adversely on on a a society hits some people harder than others, more marginalized persons harder. So that's that's why I think even though my job is to work within a specific framework um, that I have to be cognizant that you know, housing's an issue, jobs are an issue, expungement of prior criminal records. So you can get any of those are important, and um, looking for ways that I think society is moving towards change.
0: I think uh, April is uh, uh, Victims of Abuse or Survivor Month. I right. Think, There's a Victim of Crime
1: Victims Week. Yeah. There's many things. This is also Child Abuse Awareness Month and many, yeah. I think Autism Awareness Month. Or, yeah, yeah.
0: I, uh, yeah. I, I love that you're you're protecting victims,
1: you um, know, and that's yeah. one of the hardest things is when people don't see that. That's what that I'll be honest. I think it's been the hardest part of the job is not the work itself, which is challenging, but to feel like people are mad at me because they don't think I am supporting mm-hmm. victims.
0: When, uh, you know, I think about this, uh, I want to put it out there. Victims first, always, 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 especially in a community, Mm -hmm. you know, we have cancel culture. So somebody does something to one of the other community members, everyone wants to throw them out Mm -hmm. and depending on where they're at in their process, that might need to be done. But when you do that, you know, when you cancel them from our community and they move to Grand Rapids and they just start doing Mm -hmm. the same exact thing, Mm -hmm. you just captured a tiger in your backyard and put it in somebody else's backyard. Mm -hmm. And I think as a prosecuting attorney, you don't see that. But do you ever, what what do you do? All right, you, you win the case, they get sentenced. Now do you shift to how do they get the help? So when they do get out,
1: well, that's an interesting thing, because traditionally, once the case is over, whether you know uh, conviction or not, um, if someone's convicted, that person goes off to prison. And then until later, when we might do a parole review, which I never was a part of until mm-hmm. I became the elected, we really don't know what happens with them again unless they're out on parole and they commit a new crime and we see them in court with the victims um once they've been handed off and given services our case is closed so traditionally we had that very small box you know the time the crime occurred if we had to do a search warrant or you know review what the police did for investigation through the trial and potential sentencing and then we were kind of done and i think what um you know, we, we we know intuitively is that the ripple effects keep going through the system. And uh, because I've been doing this for over 40 years, I see the grandchildren, the children and grandchildren of people, either I prosecuted, kids in foster care, um, people who have come back in for a variety of reasons, people who are victims of crime now, but have a, a sibling in prison. Um, so what I've realized is that, it, you know, it is so complicated and what we really need to be more aware of is what resources are in the community to deal with that trauma. Because I think our entire community, everyone's pretty much traumatized now for one reason or another. But traditionally, you know, we just wanted to put, put, put the things into boxes. You know, this is what I can do with the legal system. You know, if you want, you can go to a counselor. But now there are groups, for example, um, Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice is a national organization started by an individual who was shot um, and he never luckily went on to have criminal activity, which many people do, but he didn't get the resources he needed. He got out of the hospital and there was nothing really to help him. So I think there's that dual prong that we always have to be looking for. What are the different resources we need? We need to send fam- we need to send counselors or others out to directly work with families when they've just lost a child to a shooting, or you know, support a domestic violence victim, or the children always, you know, to support yeah. the children. And that I would say is the biggest, I guess, legacy um, or a biggest aspect that I hope to carry forward into the future um, is what are we doing to do meaningful prevention and intervention to, um, because it doesn't, trying to pick up the pieces after the violence is not, it's not good, you know? Right. It's, and so we really need to prevent it.
0: Do you, every time I see a shooting or hear about a shooting or they, somebody calls me up and says, so-and-so just got shot. I think about, I go right to poverty and trauma. Mm-hmm. I don't go to why weren't there more police or I don't go to where were those kids' parents at? I, mm-hmm. I don't go to those typical things. I think about why aren't we talking about the trauma that we face? Why mm-hmm. aren't we talking about the eliminating poverty? We've been in poverty, persistent poverty for 40 years in this community. Why, why don't we talk about that more?
1: Well, I think, uh, and I think that's one of the really important aspects that I learned by the time I came back was that um, I learned it working with the foster care system, when foster kids were saying nothing about us without us, and then that same kind of concept was also for people re-entering after prison, but, uh, you know, and community members, um, it doesn't do a whole lot of good for you know, the the government to come in and tell us what you think we need. We really need to know in each community. And that sometimes is individual neighborhoods. Like Mm -hmm. your community center may serve a little different group than the South Side or the new auto when that's up and running. So what do you need? What are the biggest identifiers? Sometimes it's food, sometimes it's medical care, it might be transportation, housing, but it's not going to be a cookie cutter for everybody. That's right. That's right. And the services are best often provided by people who, um, you know, have come have a, understand the issue for whether they've experienced it themselves or they've just been immersed in it. So, um, That's what I see is is really critical, is we need to get some of the financial resources and and just credibility and weight behind the people who can really um, work on the issues. For example, with sexual assault, whether it's a child victim, an incest survivor, for example, or an adult victim, or some other people who have had traumatic incidents, they may not choose to utilize the criminal justice system for a whole variety of reasons. And a lot of them are because they don't trust the system, that the, tr- the system will work on their behalf. Maybe it's because, you know, someone hasn't responded in the past when they had an issue, or maybe it's because it responded unfairly. Um, maybe someone who got prosecuted for um, something that they and they got a long sentence that was disproportionate so the trust in the system and and the and the police are very valuable i'm never going to be someone who says you know abolish police or defund police i'm going to be someone who says let's make sure all the other structures mental health and and you know housing uh transportation medical care mental health care are adequately funded and non-stigmatized um you shouldn't be like stuck on waitlist for years to get Section 8 housing or that we just need to do a better job.
0: Yeah. I love that you said, you know, it's not cookie cutter because sometimes I feel like people reach for that so often they they try to buy a solution from Boston and bring it here Mm -hmm. and it just doesn't work. We don't. We're not Boston. We have our unique problems with unique causes that Mm -hmm. are unique solutions that we can sustain. So I love hearing that. We used a lot of time, but I want to ask you, what, what are you going to do? What's the next 10 years? Now? Uh,
1: well, you know, I'm 65, so um, I, I did my, the math. Yeah, the math. my term ends in 2024. Um, I haven't been. It's not a secret. I'm not planning to run again. I wouldn't say there's no possibility, but, you know, I'm a. Uh, I'm ready to consider the next steps. My older brother um, died at the age of 62, and my younger brother had a quintuple bypass here last year at the age of 62. So, you know, it's very real that we only have a certain amount of time on the earth, and I sure as heck want to have some more fun than I always, you know, have. Um, But So I don't know what – I won't not do anything. I mean, first of all, I'm someone who likes to learn. Um, When I have time off, I tend to read about things like – trauma and brain functioning um i'm gonna, i love traveling um i think i mentioned to you that um, you know i've been to bangkok and you know I've, uh, i love i just really would love to go see the pyramids of egypt and um i love gardening and i will have some kind of projects i just don't know what they are every once in a while i start leaning towards something and thinking you know i'm going to work on this so there will be things i just don't know what they are but i think what will be wonderful is when I get to the point that I'm ready to transition like that, that to focus on one or two things instead of the hundreds of things, because <laughs> on a given day, I'm dealing with, you know, personnel and budgets and, you know, individual cases that people ask me to review and, you know, trying to uh, attend webinars from national organizations. And, you know, it's, it's a lot. So.
0: Do you think you'll go back to that early dream of having a bookstore?
1: Um, There are some wonderful bookstores locally. You know, I think if everybody reads down the street or um, Emily Emily Devendorf just opened uh, The Resistance. And I know there are a couple other, um, you know, community, all the Robin Theater. And I can't remember the one that the uh, two women opened downtown. Um, I don't think with this market that i'm likely to do that at this point um my little fantasy was like to have a little old brick building and live in an apartment above and have a you know a a bookstore down below with cats and you know that (laughs) and that was you know i I had part of that dream i've had some of that dream but um no i don't think that's my dream anymore but i still have lots of books
0: (laughs) cats i saw your black cat Yes. On your Facebook page. Yes. And we've got Peppo here. Uh,
1: yes, who I I wandered across. I remember there. you
0: stopped your uh, talk one time here and said, hey Pepo.
1: It's a good thing you didn't come up here, or I would have. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: did we forget to talk about anything?
1: Um I don't think so. I think mm-hmm. it's a you know, it's a sea change. I just to say I'm not the only prosecutor doing this. So you mm-hmm. you know certainly talked with Ellie Sabbott from Washtenaw. He's been doing this for a little over a year now karen mcdonald you know certainly is has big cases going on but changing oakland county so we now represent even just the three of us uh, quite a bit of the population of michigan and overall with uh, reform prosecutors progressive prosecutors wherever you want to call us 21st century prosecutors in chicago and um, philadelphia boston until recently i don't know the new one um rachel just became the u.s attorney for massachusetts but we have people in Tampa and Durham, North Carolina and in Mississippi and Alabama and Florida and um, Colorado and California. We now represent about 20 percent of the population. Nice. So that's when things start happening where there's pushback. There's huge pushback, but there often is just before yeah. the big changes happen.
0: I just wanna, I'm gonna throw a comment up and then ask you one more question. We're fortunate to have you, you've done a fantastic job and we here also agree with that comment. We are fortunate to have you. As you're talking to the community, what's something simple, maybe not simple, but what's something we could do today to just help to make things better, whether it's, you know, safety, you know, shootings, poverty, trauma, what could we do?
1: Um, so I think the first one. <laughs> I know, that's a huge question. <laughs> first of all, to be kind, to suspend judgment. It's I just think of the recent incident. You know, with last week on uh, TV, on I didn't watch it, but you know, certainly heard about it. You know, everyone weighs in on everything right away, and everyone has an opinion right away, and just to suspend judgment, you know, gather the facts a little bit more, reach out and try to be, you know, openly supportive of some of the whole community and, and, you know, whether it is something as simple as food, a casserole sometimes, you know, or being there to say, do you need me to take you someplace? Do you need me to write a letter to a legislator? Do you, you know, just um, to join a community center and to work on a particular issue of of victim advocacy or um, expungement. I mean, there's so many good things to do, but basically I just say that there's so much and not to give into despair Um, I will say that I'm someone who plunges into despair with regularity, but I don't stay long um, because we can't afford to. We just have to keep moving forward. Yeah, I guess what I'd say is don't plunge into despair for very long.
0: (laughs) But you need it once in a while because I read recently despair is what creates hope
1: you know i'm not a pollyanna and i don't there's that toxic positivity and i'm not someone who said it's you know it's all the way it's supposed to be it's fate it's destiny um and you know you're not given more than you can bear well that's you know not true some people are given more than they can bear but that doesn't mean that we can't help support them so that they can you know get out of it
0: thank you so very much for coming on the show today thank you i enjoyed it quite a bit all right that's a wrap everyone thanks for watching every damn day and I'll be back tomorrow and we love y'all be kind to each other